Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Recall what you know about the discourse of the analyst. Not everything, but in particular, its path of addressivity. You have in the position of the agent, Objea, who is addressing the barred subjectivity of the analyzand, and in so doing, hystericizing them. Refer back to our lecture on the discourse of the analyst if you want some more details on this. What is produced from this hystericization, we said, was a new narrative, a new, perhaps, master narrative, hence the S1 in the lower right-hand quadrant of the discourse of the analyst. This is a new resubjectivizing narrative. And I believe that at the very end of Seminar 17, in Chapter 13, what we see finally at last is precisely what this narrative sounds like, what it turns out to be. And it turns out to be something that we've also discussed, namely this love of truth. The philosopher seeks to save truth, you've heard me say. The theorist, according to Lacan, is the one who loves truth. So also with the hystericized analyzand. What comes of this process, the product that you see in the discourse of the analyst, this S1, is a newfound, resubjectivizing love of truth, which you've heard me define as also a love of weakness, which is also a love of one's castration, which is also, now we can fully say, a love of impotence. What we get in chapter 13, the final substantive chapter of Seminar 17, is that all of this love would occur without shame. Love of truth as love of weakness, as love of castration, as love of impotence, and all without shame. This is what is produced by the discourse of the analyst. So much the worse for masters and universities. Masters and universities feel shame. Why? Because they also experience pride. What are they proud of? They're proud of their apparent lack of weakness, their lack of castration, their lack of impotence. They are proud of their lack of incompletion, their lack of inconsistency. The master is proud of their omnipotence, not their impotentiality. And the university is proud of their omniscience, not the truth, which is that they are ignorant and like masters of one thing more than any other, namely their impotence. This I would like to end by suggesting is why Lacan shows up as the hysteric 
in his final lecture in, in Seminar 17. And why he shows up as a hysteric to talk to everyone in the room about shame in this lecture. Now, before we jump into that, before we dive right in to this discourse on shame delivered from the position of the hysteric, recall what you've also heard me say in this series about the discourse of the hysteric. And you can go back again, just like with the discourse of the analyst, and you can review our lecture on the discourse of the hysteric and get more info about all this. Let me summarize what I take to be the salient points relative to this discussion we are ramping up to in the last chapter of Seminar 17. The discourse of the hysteric, you heard me say, is diametrically opposed to that of the university. What the university conceals occludes, rationalizes, and justifies, namely the master or the capitalist, hence that S1 in the position of truth in the discourse of the university. This is what the master, or I'm sorry, the hysteric calls into question. The very master or capitalist position that is the truth of the university discourse is the very thing that the hysteric calls into question. And not just into question, you heard me say, the hysteric calls this motherfucker to task compelling masters and universities alike to admit their own ignorance, particularly at the discourse of the master here. Ignorance, you've heard me say, about how things work. Remember, the master desires only that things work. They do not desire any knowledge of how things work. The hysteric compels the master to admit that in the field of knowledge, they come up short, lacking, insufficient, impotent. And the same is true of the perverted master, as Lacan puts it in chapter 13, namely the professor. This is what Lacan means, I believe, when he says that the hysterics discourse is what leads to knowledge. It's one of the opening claims of Seminar 17 and a pretty fitting one on which to end this discussion. It's on page 23. It's one that we've riffed on from the very start. He says the hysterics discourse is what leads to knowledge. Now, this is not the knowledge that you hear in the university discourse as a coherent, closed, totalizing, disciplinary formation, a discourse formation that is self-contained and according to the university, self-sufficient and to be monitored and to be gate-checked and all this kind of shit. The knowledge that Lacan is talking about here that the hysterics discourse produces or leads to is knowledge as an open-ended, incomplete, arcaded, and barred process. In short, a process in which lack, not plenitude, is paramount foundational, and irreducible. The type of knowledge effected by the hysterics interrogation of the S1, here the master, is a form of knowledge that, yes, emerges as the master's admission of ignorance, but it shows us a clear truth of knowledge here, that knowledge is, in fact, always open-ended. There's always some limit within knowledge that shows that it is 
oriented around some sort of an insufficiency, some sort of a gap. That's what I mean by arcaded here. I'm, of course, referring to Benjamin, who has been the background thinker throughout this series, as you've heard, and his passage in Verk. But here what I'm thinking of is something that has opened up the way an arcade or a mall would be in 19th century Paris. Again, this is why I think Bruce Fink's reading of the later Lacan's return to hysteria is correct around this notion of true scientific discourse. And here I want you to notice the shift away from the master and more towards the master's mouthpiece, the university, as a keeper and fantastical figure of closed, contained knowledge. Knowledge as epistemology, knowledge as episteme. You hear Lacan messing with epistemology here. Episteme for him and epistemology is a university discourse because it's looking at a commodified, closed circuit of knowledge that is disciplinary, that has um, fences around it, that is contained. Um, this is the very type of discourse that you see in the university. Just try to apply for a job as a professor if you don't have a PhD. Just try to apply for a job as a professor if you don't have any publications. Just try to get a publication without citing all the relevant literature that's already been published on that given topic. Isn't this precisely why the very start of a dissertation is typically a literature review? Show me that you understand where the fence is around this particular discourse. Show me that you know how this grocery store of knowledge is organized without remainder. This is the fantasy of the university discourse. It is not, however, the truth of scientific inquiry. Scientific inquiry does not proceed by the discourse of the university. Bruce is right. It proceeds by the discourse of hysteria. Now, Lacan is on the verge of that insight at the very end of Seminar 17. I cue it up again because I think it's fundamental to understanding what he's doing with hysteria relative to the university. True scientific discourse is a discourse that is always working at and talking about the limits of what we know. Not what we can know, namely epistemology, but the limits of any given epistemology, beyond which we pass into knowledge's most elaborate form, namely ignorance. And if you've got ears to hear, ignorance is always on the path to the great discovery of psychoanalysis, the unconscious. This is the work of the hysteric. The hysteric is what calls the university's epistemological fetish into question. Isn't this why Lacan refers to the university or the professor as the perverted master? They are a fetishist. If the university traffics in epistemological fantasies of certainty, self-identity, completion, disciplinary mastery, why else is it called a master's degree? The hysteric reveals all of these professors and their university discourses as, in fact, the fantasies and the keepers of fantasies that they are. Let me be clear. And again, summarizing our discourse on the hysteric. It's uncertainty and incompletion 
not their phantasmatic opposites that characterize true scientific inquiry, qua hysterical inquiry. Notice this as well. Why are all of your professors so fucking serious? Dial it back, man. Relax. Just fucking relax. You're not that important. Your work is not that important. You see what I'm saying? This is some good shit to call the master, I'm sorry, I mean the university, to task on. Lighten up, bro. Sorry, coming at you from San Francisco, coming at you from California. There's a lot of bro talk out here. And I'm not just talking about masculine bros, I'm talking about bras. It's uncertainty and incompletion that the university can't stand. It's uncertainty and incompletion that true scientific inquiry, however, embraces. True scientific inquiry. And as such, the keeper of what Lacan understands as the knowledge process, as an open-ended, ever-incomplete, etc., etc. You hear what I'm talking about here? This is a figure of the big barred other. Long story short, you heard it from me once, hear it again. Fuck unified theories of everything. This is what hysterics say, and this is what hysterics do. Let's continue in the spirit of review along these very lines and with exactly the same intensity. An intensity which should not be confused with gravitas, by the way. The love of impotence is also a lightness of being. Why and how does the discourse of the hysteric exactly lead to knowledge? Here it is, again. In short, the discourse of the hysteric leads to knowledge as a knowledge process, as true scientific inquiry, by forcing masters of every kind the Hegelian lord and the perverted professor alike, to do exactly what Lacan says the most radical logical structures also do. Namely, to mark their limits, to designate their incompleteness, to reveal how their logical foundations are cracked, and as Lacan puts it on page 67, opened up in a passage that we have also revealed. This is precisely what we've been working on with the topic of where the real father is. And not just the impossible as the real, but statements, declarations, signifiers, indices of the impossible in the field of the symbolic. The impossible is there and can be signified, is Lacan's point. This is also what is happening in the discourse of the hysteric. The hysteric shows up as symptom interrogating the master qua S1 and forcing the master to admit, to pronounce, to state their limits. The same way that Lacan on 67 says, the most radical logical structures enjoy doing. They enjoy stating the impossible. They enjoy encountering the real. Isn't this where 
the logical structure opens up onto the truth. The truth, as you've heard me say in this series, is the opening up around which every knowledge process is structured. The name that we assign to its necessary logical incompleteness, the mark that we assign to the limit of any given knowledge process is, quote, truth. Which is why you've got this linkage between the real, the truth, and the impossible in Seminar 17. Now, we can break that apart and attack each term, but notice their correspondence, their secret affinity, really an elective affinity that Lacan brings to them. Don't forget, he's also talking about Goethe here at the end of the book. In this sense, what I want to end by suggesting is that truth, again, for Lacan, is always going to be the sister of that forbidden jouissance, direct quote, by the way, from Lacan here, page 67, known as sexual jouissance, whose pathway is blocked, obscured, and lost to all who speak. This has been the bread and butter of Seminar 17. This forbidden jouissance, whose pathway is blocked. And it's precisely there, in that path, that surplus enjoyment takes root. The phrase Lacan uses that you know I like is, takes body in. Surplus enjoyment, he says, takes body in significations of the impossible. Sexual jouissance is a signifier of the impossible, and it's one in which surplus enjoyment takes root. So think about the metaphor of pathway here. The pathway is blocked by castration. It's a barrier. There's a limit. You can't go any further on that pathway. That's what impotence means when we put it in the triangle, in the bottom part of every single discourse. It's a barrier. It's a limit that says thou shalt not go any further. It's where we find the, quote, real father. It's where we find the real. It's where we find statements of the impossible beyond which you shall not pass. I've got to love some reference here from Goethe to Tolkien. Ha! Like I said, if you can't have fun with this shit and if you can't get a little weird, from time to time, and if you can't let the images and the, and the figures and illusions wash over you and wash over your thought as you're reading this stuff, you're going to wind up just like the students that Lacan is preaching to at the end of Seminar 17. Students who have just a bit too much shame, I would suggest, despite the final line in Chapter 13. The point here is that truth as the sister of sexual enjoyment qua statement of the impossible, as lost to all who speak, is that this truth is precisely what we use to designate the logical obstacle, the opening in every knowledge process. That's what the hysteric forces the master to cough up. Tell me about your ignorance. Yes, you purport to be the master, but aren't you always missing at least one thing? Now, if you have ears to hear this from a clinical point of view, the one thing that the master is always missing in the discourse of the hysteric is the hysteric themselves. 
which is again why I tell you that hysteria is on its own pathway, a pathway toward perversion. Because what the pervert freely gives to the other in hopes of bringing them to a state of completion, the hysteric withholds from the other, ever at the same time reminding them, you'll never get this, you can't have this, if you could get this, you would finally be complete, but I'll never give it up to you. There's your hysteric at work. There's their obja. They enjoy being the cause of your desire and the very thing that prevents its fulfillment. Now, that's not what we're here to talk about. What I want to talk about is the conceptual work, the critical conceptual work that the hysteric does when they engage a master and a university alike. They force them to cough up their own ignorance, to name their logical obstacles. Tell me where your logical foundations are cracked and opened up. Let's name that gap. That's what you see being produced in the discourse of the hysteric. The hysteric addresses the master and doesn't ask them to tell them what they know. The S2 in the position of product in the discourse of the master Nah, man, this is a production of ignorance. Name your ignorance. The hysteric confronts even the most authoritative subject, I'm here telling you, the master, qua S1, with this fact that everybody experiences impotence in the field of language. To speak is to be impotent in the Lacanian sense that we're working with here. It's to be castrated. It's to be limited. In other words, it's to be incomplete, inconsistent, to have a bar in one's life. The hysteric simply shows up and confronts the master with this basic fact and doesn't just call him out for it, but again, compels the master to say it, forces them to admit it, compels the master to admit that like all of us, they experience lack, ignorance, limitation, incompleteness. This is what that S2 is. It is lack, ignorance, limitation, and incompleteness pronounced. That is what is produced by the discourse of the hysteric. This, however, is only ever a half saying of truth. This is the half of truth that can be said. Don't forget, this is exactly how Lacan understands the truth. I, truth, am speaking. You hear him refer to this passage on page 65. But what I, truth, am speaking is only ever a half saying. He goes on in the previous section on page 51 to say, I am only ever speaking the truth incompletely. So even the master's admission of incompletion is itself only an incomplete statement. You heard me say that philosophia, the origin of the word philosophy, it's a platonic coinage. He made that shit up. It's love of wisdom. Lacan, however, you've heard me say, is interested more in truth. And here we have a sense of now what truth is. The love of truth he's talking about is a love of incompletion. It is a love of weakness. It is a love of castration. 
It is a love of impotence. This is the truth that is loved by the analyst. This is the truth that is loved by the theorist. And the theorist, in this sense, is not a philosopher. Professors love wisdom. Psychoanalysts love truth. What does it mean exactly, then, to love truth? I present this as a furtherance of our review here, in anticipation of what is about to happen in the final chapter of Seminar 17. To love truth, you've heard me say, is to love the part of it that can be said. Here's that half saying. But here's the hook, man. To love truth is also to love the other half, the part of it that cannot be said completely, for the reason that beyond this half, there is simply nothing to say. This is straight out of the book. It's page 51 again. Here, beyond this half saying, Lacan claims, discourse is abolished. Here, I would like to suggest, beyond the half saying, beyond the statement of limitation, incompletion, and inconsistency that the hysteric forces masters and professors alike to admit, here we can pass into weakness. Recall what Lacan says. The love of truth is the love of weakness. The love of what truths hath saying hide, namely castration. Which brings us to page 52, a really terrific page to have in mind as we're about to jump forward into the 180s. This love of weakness, that is the love of castration, according to Lacan on page 52, recall this famous passage. And if it's not famous, it damn well ought to be. This is in fact the essence of love. The love of weakness as castration, as impotence, is the very essence of what Lacan means by love. Recall this passage on page 52. It is upon this that everything that has to do with truth is constructed. That there is a love of weakness is no doubt the essence of love. As I have said, love is giving what one doesn't have, namely what might make good this original weakness. And just to be clear, what again is this original weakness? Go to the paragraph above. What is the love of truth? Lacan asked toward the top of 52. And then by the end of that paragraph, he's ready to cough it up. The love of truth is the love of this weakness whose veil we have lifted. It's the love of what truth hides, what is called castration. This is why truth as a half saying is so damn important, because it unconceals the fact that there is something there beyond what can be said at the limit of knowledge. Beyond the statement of the impossible is the impossible itself. Qua castration. And when you love truth, you love both of its sides. You love the parts of it that can be stated here are my limits, this is where I can go no further, and this is the outer limit of where we have found ourselves in this particular discourse formation. 
But what you also love is your own ignorance of what lies beyond that statement of limits. That is what the love of truth is for Lacan. You've heard me say that this is connected to the discourse of the analyst. That is precisely what is at stake throughout Seminar 17. What I want to add is that it's typically understood that Seminar 17 is a seminar about knowledge. That is not false, but it is only part of what is at stake in Seminar 17. Seminar 17 isn't simply about knowledge. It's about love. Seminar 17 is Lacan's seminar on love. Because it's the seminar that shows us that at the outer limits, really a statement of inner limits, an extimate limit that carries us to something beyond, beyond which there is nothing, Lacan says. This is what's up with knowledge. Knowledge not as a closed, complete entity, but as a process that, if done well, as a radical form of scientific inquiry, not as epistemology, but as a hysterical, in all senses now, pursuit of the truth. Not in service to knowledge, but in service to a knowledge process that yields truth, and truth as a half-saying, and also a half-saying that shows us the point beyond which we can say nothing at all, where discourse, Lacan says, is abolished. The task of the analyst is to inaugurate this love of weakness, this love of castration, this love of impotence, this love of truth as a statement of where you have to stop speaking and also as an index of the silence of discourse that you then encounter the silence that we know as a classic Lacanian real. The task of the analyst is to awaken the love of all of this in the analyzant. And what I think this means, again, is that the analyst is skilled at repurposing his or her knowledge of how the unconscious works such that it can become a love of truth among analyzants, where the analyst's knowledge was, hear me now, the analyzant's love of truth, weakness, and of love itself must become. Which brings us right to the start of chapter 13, The Power of the Impossibles, as it's so titled here. It does have to be said that it is unusual to die of shame. This is the opening riff in chapter 13, the final substantive chapter in Seminar 17. Roll down a little bit to the paragraph that continues with this topic, dying of shame. We're on page 180 of Seminar 17. Dying of shame, then. Here, the degeneration of the signifier is certain, certain to be produced by the signifier's failure, namely being towards death. Now, this is a nice little paragraph because it's got lots of parts, and we've got to take it one at a time. 
What signifier are we talking about here? We're talking about the master signifier. We got to be talking about the master signifier, man. The master signifier is precisely what the hysteric degenerates. The failure of the master signifier, its failure to encompass everything, to contain all, to be the prime mover, etc., etc. The hysteric calls out the master signifier and forces the subject, the master, to admit its degeneration, to admit its failure. And what that admission conditions is a being toward death. The fall of the master signifier is the condition of possibility for the ultimate love of weakness, namely being toward death. Now, this is some Heideggerian shit. And I don't know if anybody recorded my lectures on Heidegger from a few years ago, but being toward death, hot damn, that's the centerpiece of Heidegger's mid-1920s thought. And it's a very crucial statement, one that you've heard me talk about in previous series, one that Lacan was keen on from the 50s forward. I dare say that it's even Heidegger's understanding of being towards death as a retroactive future anterior historical process that drove Lacan to Heidegger's doorstep. I mean, literally drove him to the doorstep. Heidegger goes to Lacan, Lacan goes to Heidegger, these guys are kicking it. And part of what they're trying to kick it on, I would suspect, is this notion of being toward death that is so pronounced in Lacan's earlier work and so clearly indebted to Heidegger's thought from the mid-1920s. Here it is again, being toward death. Being toward death is less about learning how to die, you've heard me say in the past, than about knowing how to live here and now in the present. Being towards death works in a very simple way. Imagine yourself on your deathbed. You're there, you're about to die, you're looking back on your life. And there on your deathbed, you come across today, which is a past relative to the future in which you are on your deathbed. This is why I say it's retrospective, retroactive, and also working by way of a future anterior. You will have been in this moment seen from the perspective of you on your deathbed. This present in which you are imagining all this will have passed. See, and right now you already are in the weeds with Heidegger's thought. Lacan is keen on this stuff. It's in fact more from Heidegger than from Freud that Lacan understands retroaction and the future interiority that you see popping in some of his early works. That aside, we are right back here with being towards death. Being towards death is when you're on your deathbed, you're looking back, and you're looking at the worries and the things and the concerns and the, a lot of times regrets that you might have. And the question is, is what is worrying you today, mid-July 2023, let's say, that's when this is being recorded, is what is worrying me today? Something that on my deathbed, let's say 40, 50, 60 years from now, I'll look back on and be like, damn, that was a really important concern. That was a really important issue. That was, and the answer is probably not. 
And so the solution to the worries you experience today, when you envision those worries from the deep horizon of your own death, is to fucking relax. You feel me? Take it easy. This is not the thing that on your deathbed is going to cause you to feel like you should or shouldn't have done X or done Y. Now, however, if you're confronted with a life decision about a career, about a love, about a relationship, about a family member, and you look forward, imagine yourself 40, 50, 60, hell, maybe even less, maybe just a few years from now, looking back and ask yourself, will this have been an important moment in my life? If the answer is yes, you better fucking get after it. People get to their deathbed and there are thoughts they have and thoughts they don't have. Nobody gets to their deathbed and wishes they had spent more time at work, at the office. Nah, man, people start fucking dying and they start wishing they had done other things instead of all the time they spent at the office. It's classic shit. It's what you would imagine. Stereotypical here because it's in fact true. People get to their deathbed and they wish they had spent more time traveling. People start getting old and realize, shit, I missed the window where I can go walk around the Italian Alps, where I can go wander the streets of Beijing for six days, where I can go chop it up in Calcutta. Like all these things that you could have done when you were younger, you get to a certain age and suddenly you're like, fuck, I can't do that anymore. Now you have regrets. This is no way to die. Being towards death is about learning how to live in the here and now such that when it comes time for you to actually pass into the earth, motherfucker, you ain't got a lot of regrets. No, that's not what you would have at the end. People wish that they had spent more time with their families. Some people, and I speak now to my fellow professors who spend all their time in their books and don't spend a lot of time cultivating relationships with others, pursuing family, all this kind of shit, they get to the end of their careers and their brains get a little fuzzy and they realize, I missed so many opportunities to pursue love, to pursue passion, to pursue music, whatever the fuck it was that really got you excited. You get to the end of your life and you realize you spent it all, oh, I don't know, studying Lacan. Instead of trying to be a dad, a mom, a lover, a friend, a sibling, a son, a daughter, without those intimate relationships that are the true source of human happiness. I went to a funeral once. I won't tell you who this motherfucker was because you, <laughs> you may or may not know them. Rest assured they are dead. And I shit you not, I walked in to the funeral home. And not only did I see all kind of colleagues from all over this fucking earth at this place. Let me tell you, you usually go to a funeral and you walk in and there's the big bulletin board and there are pictures of the deceased. It's them with their families, it's them with their friends, doing what they love at the top of a mountain, at the bottom of the sea, like whatever the fuck. They're doing their life. This funeral... I walked in the door and the only thing pinned to this bulletin board, I shit you not, and I guarantee somebody on this call went to the same fucking funeral, saw the same fucking shit, and shit their own pants over this. It was his CV. 
his resume. And it was thick too, man. It wasn't like you could like put a fucking just a staple that shit to the bulletin board. It had a full length like pin in it. Yeah, he had like a 60, 70 page CV listing all of his publications, all of the students he had advised, all of these great career accomplishments that in the nerddom that we all trafficked in made him damn near a god, but it didn't change the fact that that motherfucker was laying in the box at the front of the funeral home. And all he had to show for his life, he died suddenly, by the way, all he had to show for it was that CV, or all they knew him for, I should say, was for his CV. Don't forget, it's the living that make the dead immortal. What does this motherfucker have as legacy? but his CV. Now, that's not what Lacan is talking about here. Lacan is talking about the process that this dude should have went through when he cues up being towards death here. A being towards death from the present when you recognize and fully embrace the fact that your life is limited, that there will come a time when you can go no further. There will come a time when you will reach not just a logical obstacle, and the construction that is your life, but a real obstacle. The impossible won't just be stated in the mouth of a doctor. You'll feel it in your motherfucking bones. Being towards death is the question you have to ask at some point in your life if you're ever going to live one that is worth remembering, that is worth dying on. The being towards death here is the ultimate embrace, love, of weakness, of castration, of impotence. I say all of this knowing that you've probably already heard me riff on being towards death and on the fact that the owl of Minerva only takes flight at dusk. You know what that means, right? Some Hegelian shit. The reason why owls symbolize truth, the reason why owls usually symbolize knowledge, wisdom, and all these other configurations, it's not just from the goddess Minerva. It's because owls come out at the end of the day. It's at the end of our day as daylight beings, which we didn't used to be, that the owl comes out and begins his. It's at the end of your life, looking back, that you will know what kind of life you lived. You will know what you missed. You will know what you did well. You will know what you accomplished and where you failed. The question is, how do you feel about all that? And Heidegger's answer, which Lacan is queuing up here, is don't wait to that point before you start asking these questions. Start asking the questions now so that you can live the life such that when you inevitably, like all of us, no matter how masterful or knowledgeable you are, despite your claims of omnipotence, dear master, despite your claims of omniscience, dear professor, you will meet the same fucking fate as all of us. It'll be your ass in the box next. And Lacan's point is that of Heidegger's as well. This is the ultimate experience of weakness, impotence, and the like. Death is the great impossible that awaits us all.
The point here is, inquire about it now. And I mean now as in as soon as you finish Seminar 17, close the fucking book and start reading Heidegger, or better yet, just start asking the questions. Notice how Lacan sets this up. Dying of shame? It's very unusual to die from shame. Here, the degeneration of the signifier is certain, certain to be produced by the signifier's failure, namely being toward death. Now we're ready to read on. Check it out. Insofar as it concerns the subject, and who else could it concern? Jouissance and death are yours and yours alone. I can help you enjoy, but I can't enjoy for you. I can help you fucking die, but I cannot die for you. Everybody is born alone, enjoys alone, and dies alone. Fundamentally. Yeah, there are people there with you when you pass. But they ain't going with you, motherfucker. Nobody dies with you. Hence the appeal of various forms of mass suicidality. We're talking about the failure of the master signifier, and we're talking about it as an opportunity to pursue being towards death as this kind of future anterior inquiry that helps you better understand how to live a life in the here and now, in the present. This is one of the ethics that Foucault fully realized as well. So if you're just not comfortable reading Heidegger, if you don't think the French did enough to launder Heideggerian thought in the post-war era, if you don't think Derrida did his heavy lifting such that you can now finally read Heidegger again, that's a joke for all the nerds out there. French thought after the war as nothing more than a laundering of Heidegger. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. But if you can't get to that point of seeing exactly what the hysteric allows the master to do, it is such a great thing that the hysteric does for the master and his perverted version, the professor, as well. The hysteric gives the master an opportunity to inquire about being towards death. And this experience as the ultimate love of weakness that is theirs and theirs alone. This is a basic existential truth as well. Nobody can fucking take a bath for you. The hysteric simply helps. The hysteric helps the master arrive at an opportunity to, to reflect on the outer limit of their own subjectivity. The, an outer limit that can concern them and them alone. Reading on. Page 180 at the end of Seminar 17. Being toward death, that is, the visiting card by which a signifier represents a subject for another signifier, you are beginning to know this off by heart, I hope. Don't even tempt me. Don't even tempt me to bring up the fact that the hypothesis of the signifier that Lacan formulates in the early 60s and that carries him throughout his thought and that we have, as you heard me say in one of the recent lectures, pronounced about 300 times, is that the signifier represents the subject to another signifier. What is this statement? Part and parcel of the visiting card that is being towards death, that the hysteric delivers to masters perverted, and Hegelian alike. Recall 
the lilies in the field. Page 76. They do not weave, nor do they spin. It is they who are in their place in the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps also in the alethosphere. But that ain't what Lacan is thinking about here. Page 77, next one over. It is true that we can well imagine the lily in the fields as a body entirely given over to jouissance, each stage of its growth identical to a formless sensation, the plant's jouissance. Nothing in any case makes it possible to escape it. It is perhaps infinitely painful to be a plant. Well, nobody amuses themselves by thinking about this except me. And now you as well. One of the great riffs in Seminar 17 is on lilies in the field, the plants' jouissance, as well as that of beavers and oysters. You know where I'm headed with this. The only thing missing from this paragraph you just heard me read are quotation marks around jouissance. And you've heard enough in this series lectures on Lacan to know why there should be quotation marks around jouissance. Perhaps it is infinitely painful to be a plant. We don't fucking know. Which brings us to page 176. The key lies in raising the question of what jouissance is. In a very real way, this is the stake in seminar 17, right? What is jouissance? And oh, he's going to link it to knowledge. But the knowledge he's thinking, again, is this knowledge process that has to do with the encounter of logical obstacles, cracks, openings in a given epistemology, if you like it. And there you see truth, some of which can be stated, some of which cannot. This is what we've been working on here. The question of jouissance also points us right to that point. Sexual jouissance as a statement of the impossible within the field of surplus enjoyment we've been discussing. The question of jouissance is key here. It's what was just raised on 77, and it's what Lacan continues precisely 100 pages later in this translation on page 177. What is important is that whether natural or not, or not it is well and truly as bound to the very origin of the signifiers coming into play. So whether we're talking about jouissance and quotation marks as some sort of unknown natural experience, whether it's the plant's pain, who fucking knows, right? Lacan's point is that in order to answer the question of jouissance, of what it is, we have to start with the signifier coming into play. And it is possible to speak of jouissance in no other way. What is important is that whether natural or not, plant, beaver, lily in the field, oyster, it is well and truly as bound to the very origin of the signifiers coming into play that it is possible to speak of jouissance. Nobody will ever know anything about what the oyster or the beaver enjoys. Because in the absence of the signifier, there is no distance between jouissance and the body. The oyster and the beaver are at the same level as the plant that we just heard on page 77, which, after all, perhaps may have jouissance at this level. We just don't really know. And that is the point about jouissance and why whenever we speak of jouissance in the animal kingdom, if you like that, in the field 
that contains the lilies, the beavers, the oysters, and the plants that like. We have to put it in quotation marks. Technically speaking, you can't talk of jouissance prior to the advent of the signifier. That is Lacan's point here. Truth is an effect of signification. Jouissance of every kind is an effect of signification. You can imagine it original all you want. You can imagine the uterine experience as a state of perfect connection, wholeness, no division between jouissance and the body. But that's all you're ever doing is imagining it. And the question Lacan wants to ask is, what part of self does that fundamental fantasy prop up? The fundamental fantasy that there could be anything like enjoyment prior to the advent of the signifier. I can tell you one thing it does. It defends against the fundamental truth that that shit is false. Jouissance is very precisely correlated with the initial form of the entry into play of what I am calling the mark, the unary trait, which is, and now you know why I'm directing us to this passage, a mark toward death, if you want to give it its meaning. Observe that nothing takes on any meaning except when death comes into play. Now you can hear this back to our series on Seminar 11 around the type of death produced by the real lack of sexuation and how that correlates, as we have thoroughly explored, with the type of death that comes next with symbolic lack. Traditionally, we think of this as castration and symbolic alienation. Lacan in Seminar 11 is admitting, in a very risky passage, I think, one of the riskiest passages in that seminar, he says that there are two lacks, a real lack that correlates with sexuation and a symbolic lack that correlates with subjectivization. We spend a lot of time talking about the latter, but not much talking about the former. They are both tinged with death. The sexed being is a being towards death. The symbolic being is also a being towards death. So when he says this is a mark toward death, the unary trait as a mark toward death, that is the initial form of entry into signification that correlates with jouissance, you have to hear this in light of what we've been talking about around being toward death. The unary trait is a mark toward death. And you can hear it in all three ways. Sexuation, subjectivization, and then the end of all of that shit. In the truth of the living subject. Namely, the weakness, castration, and impotence that is ultimately realized in death. Observe that nothing takes on any meaning except when death comes into play and in all of these three ways. It is on the basis of the split, the separation between jouissance and the henceforth mortified body. It is from the moment that there is a play of inscriptions, a mark of the unary trait, that the question arises. So the question here again is what is jouissance? He asks it at the bottom of 176. And he's saying that first and foremost, we have to talk about where that question comes from. It's only after the body has been mortified by the signifier 
that we can ask the question of jouissance. To mortify the body with the signifier is to create, to produce a barred subject. This is what Lacan means when he says the subject is the mark that the living individual receives from language. This is all the barred subject is. You can read this right at the start of Seminar 17, as we have often done here as well. Which takes us right back to page 180 and this topic of being towards death, mortified subjects, and mortified here at the level of impotence, at the level of incapacity. A mortified subject is a subject that will die, a subject that is mortal, a subject that, whether they love weakness or not, is damn sure going to confront it. Being toward death and the mortified body that it signals, the mortified body that marks the living individual who has received the mark of signification and thus become a barred subject. According to Lacan, this is the visiting card by which the signifier represents a subject for another signifier. So everything you know about the topology of the subject links up with this notion of being toward death at the level of the mortified body, which is a great way of understanding the barred subject. The barred subject is a signifier of the body having been mortified by signification. Lacan's point here is an interesting one. You may know that hypothesis by heart, but check out what he does with the idea of it as a visiting card linked to being towards death. This visiting card never arrives at the right destination, the reason being that for it to bear the address of death, the card has to be torn up. I'll let you think about that one. I'm more interested in the second sentence here. Quote, It's a shame, as they say, which should produce an ontology spelled properly at last. And if you've got the text in front of you, you can see what he's doing here. When he says it's a shame, the French is unt for shame, H-O-N-T-E. And then he wants to take that H from the French word for shame, and he slaps it on the front of the word ontology, producing a kind of ontology, which would be not a discourse on being, as we typically understand ontology, but a discourse on the being of shame. Which raises the question, could it be possible to read chapter 13, the final substantive chapter in Seminar 17, as a discourse on the being of shame. I think you can, especially if you start with the idea that masters and universities feel shame, in large part because they experience pride, and the pride they have is about their apparent lack of weakness, incompletion, inconsistency. In other words, they're proud, and they never cease telling us why. They're proud, the master says, because of their omnipotence. I speak and the world works. I'm proud, the university says, because of my omniscience. Look at all the books on my shelf. This pride, though, belies a certain amount of shame. Shame because deep down at a bone-deep level, they're just like us, mortified bodies who have suffered the defiles of the signifier 
who are in fact incomplete and inconsistent, despite what their pride propels them into in the realm of speech. Lacan is here getting after that, and I wonder if this ontology, this discourse on the being of shame, might be one way to read this last chapter in Seminar 17. I think there's something here. In the meantime, Lacan goes on to say, to die of shame is only is the only affect of death that deserves. Deserves what? That deserves to die. The idea that you could die of shame deserves to die. That's an interesting riff here. People have been quiet about this for a long time. Speaking about it, in effect, is to open this readout, which is not the last, the only one, that what can be said honestly for the honest partakes in, quote, honest, which stems from the honor that is all shame and companion of making no mention of shame. And again, in this paragraph, it's the second sentence that calls our attention. Precisely of the fact that it is impossible for the honest to die of shame, you know from me that this means the real. Only someone who suffers from pride can die of shame, but to love the truth to love weakness and impotence is to let pride and thus also shame die, or at least to turn shame into a productive opportunity to explore the whole in being that it signals. And all so that you, me, we can live, pride and shame die in the love of truth, so that we can live a life of being toward death. This is what Lacan is messing with here. And that life is an honest life in which you cannot die from shame. You know from me that this means the real. But wait, he doesn't deserve to die for that. Lacan again goes back into this quotative reported speech analytic. People say about anything and everything, thus bringing everything down to being futile. Said as it is said, with the end in mind, it elides the fact that death can be deserved, and that is precisely what pride and shame deserve, death, right along with the idea that you could die from shame. So he's messing around with this, but notice the next riff. Now, it should not be a matter of eliding the impossible, as it happens, but of being its agent. This is a great way to understand the discourse of the analyst and the more elusive work that Lacan as a hysteric is doing when he shows up here in chapter 13. These are agents of the impossible. The agency of the analyst is an agency of the impossible. The agency of the hysteric is also an agent as an agency of the impossible. An agency that brings the subjects it encounters into contact with their own impotence, weakness, limitation, as pronounced and as unpronounceable, as half said and as in half saying an indication of what cannot be said, where speech fails as well. 
Pages 182 to 183 continue this thought and push us, I believe, in the direction of this discourse of the being of shame that Lacan is queuing up here. And you get this split on pages 182 to 183 between psychoanalysis and its, quote, other side. And isn't that what we're dealing with here? The title of this seminar is The Other Side of Psychoanalysis. Notice how this unfolds. You will say to me, Lacan continues on page 182, what's the use of shame? If that is what the other side of psychoanalysis is, we don't want any. My reply to you is, you've got enough to open a shop. If you are not yet aware of this, then do a bit of analysis, as they say. You will see this vapid air of yours run up against an outlandish shame of living. That's what psychoanalysis discovers. Be a bit serious and you will notice that this shame is justified by the fact that you do not die of shame. That is, by your maintaining with all your force a discourse of the perverted master, which is the university discourse. This is the subject who is ashamed, embarrassed by their weakness, by any encounter with their limitations, any expression or sign of castration, impotence, and ultimately of the fact of life itself, namely death. This is somebody who is ashamed of the fact that their body is mortified, destined to die, just like the rest of ours, which is precisely what constitutes their pride, Lacan suggests on page 190. He's coming at students, and now you start to see not just how the discourse on the being of shame is unfolding, but to whom it is addressed. Lacan shows up as the hysteric to talk us through the discourse of the being of shame and to do so in a way that addresses this knife's edge on which students stand. Will they slide to the side of psychoanalysis and that of the hysteric? Or will they slide to the other side of psychoanalysis, namely to that of the master and the university. And what Lacan is suggesting on 182 is, you don't want to talk about shame, motherfuckers? You're saying you've had enough of it? Guess what? You got enough to open a shop. You got tons of shame. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? We know what you're ashamed of. We know why you're ashamed of it. But what happens next? Does your shame then elicit and energize more pronouncements of prideful being? I am this. I speak and the world works. I think, therefore, I am. Okay, we can try again later. Or does your shame point us in a different direction? Is it possible, in other words, to work back from the prideful statements of the university and the master to the shame that conditions those statements, and then from the shame to the whole in being that it indexes? Lacan thinks yes, but he's telling students, you're right on the edge of this shit. You're not there yet. This is why he's queuing up the discourse of the university, getting back to Hegel. He's giving them a bit of a reading assignment here at the end of Seminar 17. 
page 190 shows him really queuing up these students directly. It's toward the bottom of the page. The question is why students feel that they belong with all the rest. And you can read the SPQR bit before that. They don't at all seem to be able to see clearly how to resolve it. He's asking the question of where the students fit relative to, uh, well, you'll see, just back up and you can see. The key point for us is the next riff. I would like to point out to them, the students, that production is one essential point of the system, the production of shame. This translates as impudence. Wait a minute, shame and impudence? Impudence means insolence, contemptuousness, cockiness, a way of being without modesty. That's kind of an older way to think of impudence, but that is exactly how Lacan is using it here. Impudence is a way of acting without modesty. Now, you can read that in terms of hubris, pride coupled with self-ignorance. That works really well here from the Greek tragic sense. But really what we're talking about here is pride. Impudence means pride. Pudere from the Latin, you know, means to feel shame. It's right there in the word impudence. You can see pudere. It means to feel shame. But there's an in slapped on the front of it. What we're talking about here is a lack of shame that for Lacan is part and parcel of what shame means. That's why I suggest that the discourse of the being of shame is one where the university and the master well illustrate how shame and pride are bound up together. Because the master and the university are proud discourses, their subjects consistently experience shame. And their shame is precisely what energizes their endless production of more and more master signifiers to state the opposite. Whether you call those master signifiers S1s in the discourse of the master, or whether you notice them as S2s in the discourse of the university, all of these master significations of power, omnipotence, of knowledge, omniscience, in the case of the master, in the case of the university, these are compensations for a shame that is made to encompass the whole in being that each of these subjectivities deals with. And that's what Lacan is getting at here. There's a dialectic between shame and impudence, shame and the lack of shame that seems to be pronounced whenever the master or the professor opens their mouths. But shame for Lacan, as you've heard me suggest, is also our clue to the subversion of both discourses. Page 189, top of the page. Today I have brought you the dimension of shame. It is not a comfortable thing to put forward. It is not one of the easiest things to speak about. This is perhaps what it really is, the whole from which the master signifier arises. If it were, it might perhaps not be useless for measuring how close one has to get to it if one wants to have anything to do with the subversion or even just the rotation of the master's discourse. 
And we would also add that of the university here, the perverted master, whose fetishization of knowledge shows that they're still in league with mastery. So the master signifiers that pop up in the form of pronouncements of omnipotence in the case of the master and omniscience in the case of the professor, these master signifiers are prideful statements that are also compensations for a deep down, bone-deep experience of shame. Shame about the truth of both positions, namely that these are mortified bodies like the rest of us, not omnipotent and not omniscient, but instead impotent and also ignorant, just like the rest of us. And shame, Lacan suggests, is the signifier that connects to that whole in each of their being. That's what's up. Shame is the whole from which each discourse's master signifier arises, or at least it marks that whole. So by queuing up the topic of shame, what he's saying is we can get pretty damn close to understanding where we need to push on each discourse in order to subvert it. The way the hysteric subverts the master's discourse, and so on. We can find the way to do this by tracing the discourse of shame as it props up the discourse of pride in masters and professors alike. The rest of chapter 13 in Seminar 17, in other words, the very end of Seminar 17, is a test. It's a test that Lacan administers to the students attending this seminar. They've heard what he says about being toward death. They've heard what he's saying about shame. They've heard the cue of also this notion of pride as bound up with that to be reiterated around the level of impudence you heard on page 190. But from page 189 to the end is kind of like this test, this trial ground. Notice where Lacan puts himself and notice how he invites the students to join him there at the same time as he points out the fact that they have not yet arrived. Page 189, middle of the page. In my latest blunder, I adore these. In some sense, this is all you have to read. In my latest blunder, I adore these blunders. What does Lacan adore when he adores his own blunders? What else is this but the love of truth? That is the love of weakness. That is the love of impotence. That is love at the level of the blunder that is one's own. That one is. And then he goes on to talk about some shit he read. And note the title, The Wrong Side of Paris in English, but in the French you can also see The Other Side the same title that we see in Seminar 17. It's no coincidence he brings up this on page 189. He says it really is often cloud cuckoo land, this book by Balzac. If you haven't read it, you can still have read everything you might like to read on the history of the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th, the French Revolution, to call it by its name. You can even have read Marx. You won't understand a thing. And there will always be something that escapes you, which is only there in this story that will bore you stiff. The other side of Paris, as, it, as we might translate it into English. How would you feel 
if your dear teacher Jacques Lacan were to say this to you? Would you feel ashamed at your lack of knowledge about the French Revolution, about the fact that you have not read this book by Balzac, about the fact that there's always something that keeps escaping you, something in Lacan's discourse itself that always seems to be escaping you, and you leave these sessions feeling like you don't understand a thing. The question, and the reason why this is a test is, do you adore these moments? Do you love this experience of weakness? Or do you feel ashamed? And does your shame provoke prideful pronouncements of how you, in fact, don't miss anything in Dr. Lacan's seminars and you understand this and, oh yeah, I've read that book by Balzac. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's not great. You know, it's not the best thing that you can read on the history of the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. You know, the French Revolution. But it's okay, you know. I mean, Lacan brings it up. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Beware. This is a test that Lacan is offering. He's not just punking on the students and being like, you don't understand a thing. You're always missing something. You haven't read the book, and even if you did, you'd find it fucking boring. And, you know, bored stiff, too, by the way, perhaps even as stiff as a corpse in a coffin. Please, have a look at it, Lacan goes on to say. I am sure not many of you will have read it. It is one of the least read of Balzac's. Read it and do the following exercise. That is a red herring. This is the exercise. Balzac is not the exercise. Returning to the phenomenology is not the exercise. This last lecture in Seminar 17, Lacan is presenting them with the exercise. If you haven't read Balzac, how do you feel when Lacan cues it up here? Are you ashamed of that? And what are you going to do with that shame? That's the question. Lacan tells you what he does with his. When he fucks up, he adores those moments. He loves the blunder. Now, whether this is a performance of false humility, I don't know. But in other words, he's trotting it out for them. This is also just the page before we get to another riff on the shame of living. You can read it there on page 190. But that's not the page I want to point you to. I want to take you right to the end of this seminar, the last substantive chapter, page 192 to 193. Lacan once again uses himself and his own experience, his own work. No longer talking about Hegel, no longer talking about Balzac. He is now talking about Lacan and Lacan's Ikri of all things. To spell it out for you on page 192. To clear my own name, he says, what saves Ikri from the accident that befell it, namely that people immediately read it, is that it is a worst seller, nevertheless. So the accident that befell, what a catastrophe, his collection of writings when it was published, is that a bunch of people immediately read it. But to clear his name around this early popularity, he wants to remind everybody that this motherfucker ain't a bestseller. It is still a worst seller, in fact. Here again, you see Lacan testing them performing, I would suggest, a love of weakness. He clears his own name by coming to terms with the fact of his own limitations, of the fact that his book is not that popular, and he in fact celebrates that. 
This is a clearing of his name, not its malignment. Reading on. I'm not going to prolong this discourse any further today in this heat. Must have been hot as hell there on the 17th of June, 1970. This is the last I'm going to give this year. There are clearly many things missing. Can you imagine a professor saying there are many things missing? No, this is not how the university discourse operates. In the university discourse, the professor that is great is the professor for whom nothing is missing. Everything is accounted for. All topics in the discipline are mastered at the level of the university discourse. And imagine a master. Imagine a master who could encounter anything but slaves in his or her life. Everyone is accounted for by that category slave, including the master if they ever meet one more fierce than themselves. They too will enter that category. It is black or white. If he is, you are not. If he's the master, you damn sure are not the master, which makes you the slave. And if you're the master, he damn sure isn't the master, but instead a slave. Nothing is missing in the discourse of the master. Everybody has their place, and there are only two master or slave. For Lacan, at the end of Seminar 17, there are clearly many things that are still missing. But it would not be pointless to add the following, if, to speak as Hegel would, there are some slightly less than ignoble reasons for your presence here in such numbers. Remember what he said earlier, Returning to the phenomenology and that riff on ignoble consciousness being the basis for noble consciousness and how good it is to be unworthy. This is not a self-mortifying discourse, by the way. This is an acceptance and a love of the fact that all bodies, that of all living subjects, are mortified. And everybody keeps showing up to these seminars nonetheless, Lacan says. My book is a worst seller. I clearly leave many things missing. I have all types of blunders left and right, and yet y'all keep showing up. And then you get him lapsing back into his own ego formation. And it's often been an inconvenience for me, he says, just how popular this is, how people keep showing up in such numbers. What a pain in the ass <laughs> he's suggesting here. This is obviously a question of tact, as Goethe would say. I make of it, it would seem, not too much, but just enough. And that is the end phrase for Seminar 17, this just enough. If this phenomenon takes place, which is frankly incomprehensible, the phenomenon known as Lacan's seminar. Given what it is that I put forward for the majority of you, if you still keep coming back, and in such large numbers, Lacan is concluding here, it's because I happen to make you ashamed. Not too much, but just enough. And that emphasis on just enough shame is exactly where Lacan ends. These are the final words in Seminar 17. Just enough shame to signpost for you 
where the hole in your being is, but not so much shame that you then are led to more prideful pronouncements as master and university to compensate for this overwhelming experience of shame. Lacan wants to shame his students just enough, just enough to get them to read Hegel, just enough to get them to read Balzac, but also, don't get it twisted, just enough to keep them coming back again and again, even at considerable inconvenience to him. Which brings us to the final question of Seminar 17, which is also our final question with regard to this just enough shame. Is this just enough shame to bring his students to the hole from which their master signifiers of pride would otherwise extend? If it were, it might perhaps not be useless for measuring how close one has to get to it if one wants to have anything to do with the subversion or even just the rotation of the master's discourse and the university discourse alike. This subversion, this rotation of each, again, would be a subversion and a rotation of each that would not just bring students to the whole in their being signaled by the shame that Lacan is giving them in just enough increments, it would also be an invitation for them to pass from this feeling of shame into and up against the logical obstacle that is this hole in their being where truths are always half-stated and in being half-stated right on the edge of nothing. A nothing which can only be that of castration, of weakness, of what we have been describing here as impotence. Whether they could learn to love castration, weakness, impotence, and the like, perhaps this is precisely the work of a training analysis to determine. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.